Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. Today, we're bringing you part two in a two-episode series on dementia. In late September, Biogen, the company that developed aducanumab, issued a press release stating that lecanumab, also an anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody, met its primary endpoint in a phase three trial and slowed the rate of cognitive decline by up to 27% in clinical trial participants with mild cognitive impairment. Full trial results are expected in November, but following in aducanumab's footsteps, lecanumab has already been accepted into the FDA's accelerated approval pathway. Given aducanumab's tumultuous trajectory, we're not holding our breath. Instead, we're thinking about the need for high-quality evidence on dementia therapies to make sure new therapies are safe, even as the clock drawings are ticking. While many consider Medicare's refusal to pay for aducanumab outside of clinical trials a correction to the FDA's error in approving the medicine, it is essentially crossed out one of the few potential treatment options for patients with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. How can we strike a better balance in clinical trials between generating high-quality evidence we can trust and the urgent needs of patients with life-limiting conditions and very little treatment options? I'm Jenny Rasanathan, family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ, here as always with Tom and Navjoit. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. I enjoyed the, um, the clock reference there and the, the, the deep breath as well. Like it. Womp womp. <laughs> I'm, and... I'm, uh, I should say who I am. I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP and the clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Navjoit. Hi, I'm Navjoit Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. And I just want to congratulate you on your pronunciation of those very complicated medication names. Well done, Jenny. <laughs> it took some practice. Um, thank you. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Hussein Naji, Associate Professor of Health Policy and Advisor to the Analysis Section of the BMJ. Hi, Hussein. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. As you said, I'm an Associate Professor of Health Policy at the London School of Economics, uh, just down the street from the British Medical Association House, um, and I have been teaching evidence review and synthesis at the LSE for the past 10 or so years, and I um, evaluate regulatory policies and pharmaceutical policies surrounding how new drugs develop and make it into the marketplace. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. So we wanted to reflect a little bit on aducanumab, think about, you know, how hopeful we should be about lecanumab and also talk a little bit about the challenges with clinical trials and the quality of evidence as we kind of race to get some new therapies investigated and approved. Um, so, Hussein, maybe um, you can tell us a little bit, do you, is there anything that you've read that gives you hope about the new um, the new treatment, lecanumab, that's been put forward for accelerated approval? Um, so, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, Jenny, that uh, all we know about this new drug, lecanumab, is based on a press release that was issued by the manufacturer um, of this investigational drug, which was released about 15 days ago or so. Um, and yes, so there is some room for optimism here, I think, um, in that the clinical trial that was designed for this drug actually evaluated, in addition 
to a surrogate endpoint of amyloid plaques in the brain, a clinical outcome um, that actually looks at how people feel and function and their rate of cognitive decline. And there was a statistically significant effect of this drug on that clinical outcome, and it seemed to slow down the rate of cognitive decline in patients who receive the drug compared to those who received a placebo. Um, important to note that this was among people who were early stage Alzheimer's disease. Um, so there is a big change or, or big difference between the aducanumab um, kind of example versus this one, where aducanumab was only approved on the basis of a surrogate endpoint. We now have some evidence on a clinical outcome that is a lot more meaningful for patients and their families. That is super helpful. Thank you. Can you say more about what a surrogate endpoint is and how widely they're used? Sure. Um, so a surrogate endpoint is essentially an endpoint that is used in clinical trials that is thought to predict clinical benefits, but is not itself a measure of clinical benefits. Um, so we can think of examples like radiographic images or um, lab values or physical measures that are commonly used as surrogate endpoints in clinical trials. And these are usually things like that are that are short-term or intermediate indicators of clinical benefits. So we kind of have the expectation or the assumption that if we see an improvement on a surrogate endpoint, this will translate to a clinical improvement. And by clinical improvement, I'm thinking of things that really ultimately matter for us whether we live longer or whether we have better quality of life um, after having received these drugs. So surrogates are those things that hopefully give us some idea as to whether the drug will actually help us improve um, health outcomes. Um, in terms of how commonly they're used, in clinical trials, they're used very, very commonly. Um, in fact, about 60% or so of all clinical trials that support new drug approvals have trials that are evaluating surrogate endpoints. Um, and this is uh, quite variable across different therapeutic areas. If you look at cancer, I know this is an episode about dementia, but cancer is really leading the way here where about 80% of all trials in cancer measure surrogate endpoints, um, which means you know, we don't really have evidence that these drugs actually improve people's lives necessarily um, when the drugs come on the marketplace. Um, so they're very commonly used. And there are several reasons that we can get into as to why these surrogates can be useful in clinical trials. So, um, hi, Hussein. I, I've been um, writing some of the BMJ's research reviews. It's just a page of the BMJ, which everyone listening should, should read every, every week. Um, they already do talk. <laughs> of course they do, yeah. <laughs> um, and this comes up quite a bit because I, I look through the, the major journals and, and yeah, try to give a, a, a brief summary of, of what they're saying. Um, there was a couple this week, um, one for something called cerebral embolic protection, which is um, it's basically like a sieve that you put, put into the uh, carotid and vertebral arteries during a, a TAVR um, operation, a transcatheter valve replacement. And um, the initial, kind of, this is where the surrogate endpoints come in, the initial evidence was that these sort of sieves, you know, in 99% of patients uh, using them, collected this debris, which was thought to then, you know, it's the stuff that causes the stroke, which affects about 4% of people having these procedures. Um, 
But, you know, lo and behold, in this week's New England Journal of Medicine, or last week, or whenever you're listening, <laughs> around October, um, a, a randomised controlled trial of these devices found no difference in the rate of periprocedural stroke using these devices, despite the fact that um, in the US, apparently about 13% of uh, TAVR procedures use them at great cost. So that's one example. Um, I don't know if anyone... You haven't had a chance to read because this hasn't been published yet, so my my research reviews. But um, So that was one I thought was quite interesting. And then there's, an, I would say, even more interesting one about uh, uh, melanoma and... Uh, it was an ecological cross-sectional study, which um, basically looks at things like the weather and um, and various other kind of proxies for sun exposure. And um, and really, it was asking what's more important to someone's risk of developing or likelihood of developing melanoma: is it their sun exposure or is it their access to a doctor? And um, yeah, they they concluded that. Uh, the current pattern of melanoma incidence in the US is apparently less associated with UV radiation exposure and more so with medical practice. So there's the, the more you're, you, the more doctors there are in your county in the US, the more likely you are to develop, well, or to be diagnosed with melanoma. And then very controversially, I think they, they say something like, um, researchers interested in sun exposure should focus on the feared outcome of the d- disease rather than the diagnosis. Um, so again, I think it's finally getting around to um, surrogate endpoints. They're, they're really saying that there's a lot more to diagnosis of melanoma than than just sun exposure, and and actually when they looked at the um, association between diagnosis and mortality, that was so the um, surrogate in this case was. Well, I think it's actually a diagnosis of melanoma rather than actually the what they called the feared outcome, which I suppose is, is death mm. from melanoma. Um, and they're saying that that whilst diagnosis is going up a lot, actual mortality isn't. Mm. So um, I don't know, I presume they probably haven't adjusted for things like better treatments and stuff, but um, I thought that was quite an interesting and provocative idea that it's uh, it's maybe another area of, of overdiagnosis, which, which sounds odd yeah. to me, but... Um- yeah, super fascinating. I mean, and of course you're right. The challenge that we have in terms of kind of wanting to accelerate access to medicines uh, compared to needing to accumulate high quality evidence is not only in dementia. Um, before we kind of shift gears and thinking and think a little bit about kind of um, how regulation might play a role. Hussein, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about the implications of using surrogate endpoints in research, whether it's in dementia or any of these other areas. Why why should we care about this? Well, um, I think it's important to note that there may be some advantages of using surrogates to evaluate um, drug effects. Um, And those potential advantages include things like we can actually do trials in a much more efficient way by using surrogates. So if we have a good surrogate that predicts a clinical outcome, let's say cholesterol reduction, um, and we're testing a hypothetical drug to reduce the risk of heart disease, if we rely on that surrogate of cholesterol reduction, we can do a trial using relatively few people over a relatively short period of time. And then we can obtain some results to to, to see if the drug actually has, a, has an effect. But if you're interested in testing the effect of this drug using 
risk of heart disease, which is the clinical outcome that we ultimately care about, that may require many more people and a much longer time frame, and therefore a lot more cost associated with it. So this is really the dilemma here when we're using surrogates, that it has this advantage that it can reduce the cost associated with doing clinical trials. But these surrogates are only useful if they are good predictors of what we ultimately care about. Do people live longer? Do they have better lives as a result of taking this treatment? And unfortunately, this is where evidence is really lacking because the vast majority of instances, and I think, Tom, your example with the TAVR is really illustrative here, that we oftentimes rely on surrogate endpoints under the assumption or under the hope that this will predict clinical outcomes, but this evidence is oftentimes lacking. And in many instances, we end up realizing much later on that this assumption actually doesn't hold, that there is a very weak association between the surrogate and the clinical outcome. And this is where the use of surrogate endpoints can be quite problematic. And actually, Hussein, I think you've written for us before about um, this example in with diabetes drugs and you know using glycemic control and your glucose level as a surrogate outcome for um, the effectiveness of those drugs. And um, when actually, you know, the the clinical outcome we're interested in is the reduction in kind of micro and macrovascular complications, um, Mm -hmm. or at least, you know, outcomes that are more meaningful to patients. And I think that's an example where our kind of focus on that as a surrogate outcome. And for a long time, the sort of treatment paradigm was, you know, really driving down those um, glucose levels. And then we we later realized actually that, you know, with um, clinical trials that emerged later, that actually that approach can cause harm as well. So I think it's not just um, the absence of uh, the kind of hard clinical outcomes. It's also whether the focus on the surrogate outcomes, uh, you know, take if we take that too far, actually we're, we're doing things wrong. Yeah, and I would, I, would, I would extend that even further because I think it really changes the research landscape. If we, if we start accepting surrogate endpoints as reasonable outcomes to evaluate new interventions, new drugs, new treatments, new services in healthcare, then this is essentially lowering the bar for accepting new treatments and to adopt them into our treatment pathways and our um, day-to-day clinical practice. And I think this is where um, it's really critical that we evaluate surrogate endpoints before they are widely used in research, in clinical trials, for regulatory decisions, so that we avoid those situations where we have a research landscape in particular therapeutic areas that are really inundated by surrogate endpoints and not Mm. much else. Um, Hussein, do you think that kind of amyloid plaques have essentially done that in, I know you're not necessarily an expert in dementia research itself, but thinking about the use of amyloid plaques as a surrogate endpoint, do you see that kind of happening in some of the um, drug candidates for Alzheimer's disease? Absolutely. Um, I think there's quite a strong um, form of evidence that... um, in the context of Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid hypothesis has really driven the therapeutic developments um, over the past 20 or so years. Um, and again, this, this hypothesis uh, around amyloid suggests that um, Alzheimer's disease is a direct kind of um, um, follow-up to amyloid plaques building in the brain. Um, so it's a, it's a result of the accumulation of these amyloid plaques in the, in the brain. Um, and we've had now over 
20 therapeutic agents that have been explored in this space using this um, hypothesis, targeting this hypothesis. Some drugs or investigational drugs, I should say, have tried to reduce the production of these plaques. Others have tried stopping them from coming together and aggregating in the brain. Others have tried to clear them from the brain. So they have really tried to tackle this amyloid plaque build up in the brain from different kind of um, in different ways and none of them have produced clinical benefit to date the only potential exception is the lecanemab example that you, that you brought up um, in the beginning of the podcast and again this is there is a, a room for optimism here it's still early days of course we don't have anything beyond the press release but there is potential um, example here that may serve to um, reignite enthusiasm in the amyloid hypothesis in this mm. space, yeah. even though when we look at totality of the evidence base and the tens of randomized controlled trials that have tested this association, um, it stands to be um, a singular example to date. So if we were to look at the totality of the evidence base, this, this, this amyloid hypothesis still doesn't necessarily give us a lot of reassurance that this is the way to go in this space. Mm. Mm. Can I just pick up, I know you've both mentioned that um, this drug, these results were announced by press release, but, um, and you know, we all know that that, how sort of unsatisfactory that is as a kind of approach mm -hmm. to making the results of your research known. Um, but just thinking about this from a patient perspective and, you know, we're GPs and, and just how sort of heart-wrenching that is for patients and their families to kind of you know, the press releases use, you know, all this kind of very uh, sort of promising language that kind of promotes promotes the sort of potential um, of the of the drug. And I think if I was a relative um, or carer reading that, I would be really excited. But it's hard, I think, to then sort of, you know, as GPs, if patients come and ask you that or for patients themselves who kind of look further to kind of try and find the information. And it's so... It's just so unsatisfactory. I just didn't want to, I just wanted to make that point that I, I think that this, uh, the whole kind of picture of surrogate outcomes is problematic, but also this is part of the problem as well, where this information, mm -hmm. this hype kind of gets built up and sort of paves the way for these drugs to emerge and frankly can leave patients kind of hanging really without much information. Yeah. And can, can I just add something here about the press release? Because I think um, I, I completely agree with you now, Joyce, on this. Um, and in fact, the media coverage of the press release is arguably even more problematic in this case, because the media coverage has focused on uh, a 20%, 27% relative reduction um, in the progression of cognitive decline. But when you look at the absolute difference between the two groups, it is 0.45 on a 19 point scale going from zero to 18. So the magnitude of that effect is much more modest when we look at the absolute difference, but the media has picked up on the relative reduction, which looks a lot more remarkable. And there's a question here um, as to whether that 0.45 absolute difference is actually clinically meaningful. There is research that suggests that we would want to see a one to two point difference between the groups for us to consider that difference to be clinically meaningful, and this doesn't meet that threshold. So there's a lot more to unpack here when we see the actual results and regulators actually scrutinize this data as they will be doing um, over the next uh, few weeks and months. 
Thanks so much. That's such an important point, Hussein, and that's right. The the medicine was evaluated, or the effects of the lecanumab, I should say, were evaluated on the CDR-SB scale, and each kind of category of stage of dementia is roughly a range of four points. So to make it out of kind of mild cognitive impairment to possible cognitive impairment or indeed to advanced more severe cognitive impairment, you have to have a difference of at, at least a couple, a couple points to get to the next category where you might see a clinical difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds almost like what we're kind of circling around here with the press release is that there's something about the kind of commercialization of medicines and about evidence that is playing a role here. Um, and Hussein, I wonder if you could speak to your, you know, your view on how pharmaceutical companies are kind of driving and exacerbating um, some of the problems that we're seeing with medicines like aducanumab and lecanumab. Sure. Um, I mean, I think it's, um, uh, in a way, it's it's really sensible that pharmaceutical companies have an interest here in that um, companies are investing large sums of money in research and development before their products can even make it to the marketplace. And they have an interest in reducing that cost. Um, and surrogate endpoints are really providing an opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to do trials that cost less and get their products onto the marketplace quicker. Um, And this has been a huge policy win for the pharmaceutical industry over the past decade or so, because they have been able to lobby governments, especially in the US, um, where federal law has now allowed for flexibility, where regulators are encouraged to use surrogate endpoints to make decisions on new drugs. Um, And this, of course, is a big win for the pharmaceutical industry and for pharmaceutical companies. Um, And again, this can be a good thing um, if we have good surrogates, but it has to be accompanied with some evidence that the surrogates that we're currently using or will be using in the future are good surrogates and they're good predictors of clinical outcomes. Um, I was just just thinking about what what we're talking about here, about to go into a anti-capitalist kind of march about, about but but then I've changed my mind like is, is this a, a failure of regulation and like that we don't have the, the checks and balances to the the commercial and you know prop capitalist system of producing new treatments um you know the company shouldn't be allowed or it should be made difficult for them mm. to announce something through, through press release without publishing the the the, the the, the data at the same time or um, I mean I I, yeah, I think regulators have a, a huge role to play here um, both in um, contributing to the problem admittedly and in potentially contributing to a solution to this problem in the future um, so if, if we think about the regulatory agency um, for pharmaceuticals uh, or, or regulators for pharmaceuticals I, I would argue that they're really uniquely positioned to really determine both the quantity and the quality of the evidence base that we see on new drugs. And we can even think of regulators as kind of gatekeepers to the pharmaceutical um, marketplace. If companies don't have the green light from the regulators, they cannot market or sell their products. Physicians cannot prescribe those products. Patients cannot use those products. Um, Therefore, regulators have huge power over pharmaceutical companies. 
And they also have legal authority to require good evidence from pharmaceutical companies. The issue over the past quarter century or so has been that regulators have lowered the bar for market entry for new products. And this has been in part due to lobbying by pharmaceutical companies and in also in part by patient group advocacy that has also demanded faster access to new medicines. So those have gone hand in hand. And that's that's really difficult to disentangle as to what's really the driving force here. But nevertheless, I would uh, I mean, there's conclusive evidence now that regulators have really lowered their bar for market entry, and they're really um, allowing for these surrogate endpoints to be used quite considerably. Um, I can give you some examples about how regulators are kind of shaping the landscape um, with examples from dementia, if, that, that, if, if that's of interest. Um, and for instance, regulators, I mean, they have all sorts of um, ways in which they can shape the the type of research that companies do. And one way that they can do that is through issuing guidance, non-binding guidance for pharmaceutical companies when they're designing their clinical trials. And one example of this was in Alzheimer's disease, the FDA, the large regulatory agency in the US for drugs. They issued a guidance in 2013 and said, and very much encouraged companies developing drugs for Alzheimer's disease to measure cognition and function as their primary out outcomes in their trials. And when we look at the impact this had on the types of clinical trials that companies did over the past decade, it actually had a measurable impact. And companies ended up more closely following the FDA guidance. But on the contrary, unfortunately, in 2018, FDA reversed course. And it started asking or allowing for flexibility that companies can also measure surrogate endpoints or non-clinical endpoints. And correspondingly, we now see a decline in the proportions of clinical trials that are measuring clinical outcomes. So I think it really shows how regulators can help, but also can, be, um, can, can really jeopardize the quality of the evidence space um, uh, in, in Alzheimer's disease and, and, and beyond. Um, that is super interesting, Hussein, um, and really interesting to see that guidance from regulators does make a difference or can exacerbate the issue. And I wonder, um, thinking about kind of the role of the regulator, but also the role of the pharmaceutical companies here, um, to what extent is transparency a problem um, with respect to endpoints and how we design trials that do or do not give us meaningful information um, for patients? Um, I, would, I would say that transparency is hugely important, of course. Um, we know that companies have several meetings with regulatory agencies when they're developing their products um, during the R&D phase of clinical development. And these meetings are very much designed to help companies better understand regulatory expectations so that they can be more efficient in their efforts when they're developing and evaluating new products. Um, unfortunately, um, these interactions are confidential and the contents of these discussions are actually rarely publicly disclosed. And this has been an area of controversy both in Europe and in the US recently. In the European Union, the Ombudsman had initiated an investigation before the pandemic 
about these interactions between the European Medicines Agency, so this is the European counterpart of the FDA, and pharmaceutical companies. And the ombudsman thought that this was sending a signal to the public that there are things that are happening that we're not aware of, and this almost looks like a conflict of interest, and it looks like capture in a way. Um, and ultimately, um, this was resolved with certain recommendations for improving transparency. Um, but this issue came up again in the US following the controversial aducanumab decision that we've already talked about when it was disclosed that the FDA and several officials within the FDA had meetings with executives from the manufacturer of the drug, um, Biogen. And it's, it's not clear, of course, um, whether this had any role, if it played any role in the FDA's ultimate controversial decision to grant an accelerated approval to this drug. Um, but it certainly raised questions to the extent that there is currently an investigation that's actually happening to the nature of these meetings. But I think going looking beyond these um, kinds of investigations and questions around um, these interactions, I think what's really important is that we need to know the frequency of these meetings, we need to know the nature of these meetings, and more importantly, the content of these discussions, because we need to understand what the regulator is asking companies to do and whether companies are actually following that advice. Because without that accountability, the public, and of course, patients, clinicians, and researchers, we cannot really scrutinize whether the regulatory advice is sound and whether it's actually aligned with the regulator's own guidance and expectations. So that's super interesting, Hussein. And it's good to hear that regulatory guidance can play a role in terms of uh, directing clinical endpoints to be a little bit more patient-centered. And I wonder, um, thinking about the role of regulators as well as pharmaceutical companies, um, to what extent transparency is a problem here or or what how important that is? Hussein, I, I'm thinking about this from, obviously, from GP perspective. You know, we have patients coming in and you know, we've got things like raising, rising rates or, or I should say declining rates of like childhood immunizations, you know, vaccine hesitancy, a lot of distrust in drug treatments and patients often to tell you about that. And and I guess I'm just got my sort of head in my hands a little bit here going, you know, this is kind of fuel for for that sort of distrust and it and 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 I, I just think how 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 do I sort of how would you address that in in a in a consultation i guess you i just try to be open and say yeah it's that there are some problems at the moment and and uh where do you go though if you can't really trust the regulators to um to be open and transparent and um you know insist on the highest standards for 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 for, for approving these these uh, treatments uh, <laughs> that's that's a very difficult question tom thank you um i guess I guess I, I, I mean, I completely understand how difficult it must be um, uh, to try to really distinguish hype from reality um, when you're discussing benefits of new drugs um, that are approved by regulators or recommended for use by organizations like NICE um, and others in different countries. Um, I think ultimately um, what really needs to change from a policy perspective, which is what I can kind of comment on, 
is that we need better information from regulators so that you feel better equipped in discussing the benefits as well as the uncertainties of these new drugs when they're coming on the market. And by that, I mean really having specific language that you can use in consultations with patients, visually appealing um, information that is intuitive to understand, that is easy to communicate, um, so that you're going beyond these kind of um, language that we're seeing in um, marketing materials or press releases or other types of um, uh, kind of sources of information and really drilling down on what are the benefits, what are the harms, and how can we trade off those types of things. So I always go back to things like um, the drug facts box that was initially developed by Stephen Woloshin and Lisa Schwartz in the US. And you can, you know, people can access these things in the Lisa Schwartz Foundation's website where FDA-approved drugs have a drug fact box that clearly communicates this information, and that can be a useful resource. But I would very much hope that this becomes more kind of commonplace and almost routine for regulators to, to issue so that your discussions with patients can be a bit more kind of grounded on the, the, the specifics of the evidence base. And then can I also ask about, you know, going back to surrogate endpoints, because it's not just a case of saying, surrogate endpoints are bad and you know like you said you know sometimes that then they're, they're a necessary thing so i'm thinking of the flu vaccine campaign i think there hasn't been an rct of a flu vaccine for some time it's it's based on surrogate endpoints if i'm if i'm right and yet we 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 don't question that so much so i, I you know again how do you as a practicing clinician who's not actually that interested in in these kind of high level stuff you know <laughs> make sense of of um of this, you just have to. I guess you just have to go with what what is being recommended by people like Nice or or your local kind of um, committee of experts. But can you give us anything more than that for for, for surrogate endpoints? Um, I think I would I would go back to um, clarity in the language that we're using to communicate drug benefits um, or or benefits of healthcare interventions in general, um, because if we're talking about whether a drug works or not without being specific as to on what metric is it actually going to change the way uh, change the way that people actually feel the way that they function how long they survive those are the things that we ultimately care about if we're able to distinguish between those products that have evidence that conclusively can demonstrate that products will actually improve people's lives i think we have to um, try to distinguish those products from those others that don't have that evidence available. Um, and only by talking about this issue, we will be able to raise awareness and hopefully ask for better evidence, um, which would be in the best interest of all the parties, I would imagine, from patients to families and uh, clinicians and, and the broader healthcare system. Thanks, Hussein. So important. We'll be back with a bit more discussion of what this means for patients in a little bit. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. 
We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Now we're back talking with Hussein Naji about surrogate endpoints in dementia research and specifically what some of these controversial decisions based on surrogate endpoints mean for patients. Um, I think I would I would go back to um, clarity in the language that we're using to communicate drug benefits um, or, or benefits of healthcare interventions in general, um, because if we're talking about whether a drug works or not without being specific as to on what metric is it actually going to change the way uh, change the way that people actually feel the way that they function how long they survive those are the things that we ultimately care about if we're able to distinguish between those products that have evidence that conclusively can demonstrate that products will actually improve people's lives i think we have to um, try to distinguish those products from those others that don't have that evidence available. Um, and only by talking about this issue, we will be able to raise awareness and hopefully ask for better evidence, um, which would be in the best interest of all the parties, I would imagine, from patients to families and uh, clinicians and, and the broader healthcare system. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the, the place you see it most often is in a terminal cancer, isn't it? And an untreatable cancer and the person might be on their third or fourth treatment. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, when you're listening to them telling you what's happening, that this is last ditch, you know, attempt to find something that that's going to help. And, you know, they're likely in their last few months or of their lives. So yeah, it's, it's horrible. Well, horrible. It's, it's, it's it's um yeah heartbreaking is probably the word to to describe it um and that hope but well maybe hope is a a thing which we should value more of as well and and how actually having some hope is crucial isn't it maybe you see that in people with depression often it's a lack of hope and lack of interest lack of you know seeing the future which um is also really devastating no i think i think that is that is such an important point i mean hope is obviously important and maybe that's for an, an individual patient to maybe sort of think about to what extent hope versus kind of what is a more, you know, what the evidence shows or what we know about something, the kind of, you know, do, do I, I guess that's going to be a highly individual decision, the extent to which someone wants to take a chance on something um, that is untested or is in the process of being tested in the context of a clinical trial 
Um, my reflection on all of this as well is also that, um, you know, we have so many conversations on this podcast about um, sustainability and delivering a sort of sustainable health service. And, and you know, there's just a bewildering array of treatments that you realise that the evidence that we have for them is, you know, there's some evidence and maybe that's, you know, on a surrogate outcome. But Oftentimes it's not, you know, I, I don't have that evidence at my fingertips a lot of the time. You know, we rely on guideline developers, regulators. And um, I was just thinking about, you know, how much time we spend with people counselling them about medications or people asking us questions about medications for things that maybe are marginal, of marginal benefit, if any benefit at all. And so I suppose, you know, you're just reflecting on what this means for an individual patient, but then also thinking about populations and our ability to deliver, um, you know, the, the right care at the right time. I think that is so hard as well. Absolutely. I think um, all stakeholders in the system, starting from the regulators to the pharmaceutical companies that are paying for these trials, to the investigators that are designing these trials, to the ethics committees that are um, scrutinizing the appropriateness of these trials, to the patients who are involved in um, taking part in these trials. I think we all have a part, in, part to play, actually, and demand better evidence because I, I don't think it's inevitable that we need to have surrogate endpoints. They do have a place, as I argued in the in the beginning of the podcast, but that, that kind of um, context, I think, is quite limited. And we need to ask quite hard questions when we see products that are approved purely on the basis of surrogate endpoints, whether this is going to materially change people's lives for the better. I would also add, Hussein, and I'm curious, you know, if you have any thoughts on this, um, since we mentioned this earlier, but, you know, there seems to be something in this for me about, you know, choosing endpoints that are meaningful. So when, you know, when there's a press release saying that, you know, there's a 27% reduction in the rate of cognitive decline um, by 0.45 on a 19-point scale, I think there has to be something, um, you know, and, and to your point, you know, regulators or others need to translate that for clinicians. But then, like, isn't there also something about, um, you know, pushing um, trials to, you know, think a little bit more carefully about the scales that they use and for regulators demanding, you know, a kind of... Um, I don't know, demonstrative difference in terms of outcomes so that when a patient does come to you and say, you know, should my aging parent who seems to have mild cognitive impairment, should they be taking one of these medicines that we can say, well, there is such and such evidence and they looked at these meaningful endpoints, which may or may not be relevant to you and your family. No, I very much agree with that. I think at the population level, at the health system level, um, we tend to focus a lot on the potential benefits of new technologies. And this oftentimes comes at the expense of already established and quite effective and cost-effective services that are already available. And I think this is um, something we need to pay a bit more attention to um, because there are already established services that we can provide more of rather than focusing so much on new technologies that oftentimes have very limited evidence um, or marginal evidence. Um, so this is something that uh, I, I completely agree with this. 
That that's so helpful, Hussein. And I guess, you know, one kind of maybe final reflection from me is just thinking about the kind of ups and downs that patients experience both as they participate in clinical trials or not, or have the clinical trial kind of um, discontinued in the case of aducanumab. Um, And I guess it's what this sounds really cheesy, but what it kind of comes down to for me is hope. So we published an article in the Christmas issue last year thinking about the hope that clinical trial participants have and its fluctuations along the course of being in a clinical trial. And um, this this particular paper focused on patients with Alzheimer's disease and their carers. And, you know, there was another um, recent phase three trial um, with surrogate endpoints, this one looking at Tofersen for ALS. Um, and the same company, Biogen, has already submitted Tofersen to the FDA for accelerated approval. Um, and they had to kind of extend the trial period, having seen no improvement in clinical endpoints um, in their primary outcomes, and or which was their, excuse me, their primary outcome. And I just, it just made me think, like, for those patients who have no treatment options, um, people who were involved in that trial um, must be on this total roller coaster of hope. Um, and it, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I know we've been quite hard on the pharmaceutical industry and regulators and far be it from me to kind of defend them. But I think we sort of, there is a recognition that these treatments are wanted. Like, you know, these are all, a lot of this is fueled by pathways, you know, regulatory pathways that have been developed to speed up these, you know, for whatever political reasons or whatever it is. I don't know if that's important to mention. Where I guess where I was going to end is, you know, we, I, I really take your point, Hussein, that we each have a role to play in terms of pushing for higher quality evidence. Um, but, you know, it, at, at the end of the day, we still have patients who kind of need new treatments now. And I'm really empathetic. You know, this conversation is not to discount the kind of struggle that they are enduring, the suffering that sometimes they endure, um, waiting for medications to treat conditions like end-stage cancers, ALS, and Alzheimer's disease. And on that, we're wrapping up today's episode. Thank you so much, Hussein, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Tom and Navjoit. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Hussein. Bye for now. 